Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Gas's Belly Project. So I know I've fallen behind in my publishing schedule of late. I moved to a new place a few weeks ago, and as we all know, moving tends to be a laborious process. I'm finally getting settled in again though, and actually have a workspace, as well as some time to write and record. As always, I encourage any feedback you might have, whether that be a comment or correction or anything at all. I love listener feedback. So this episode is pretty straightforward in that it is mostly a biography of Dwight Eisenhower. Now that he has entered into the center stage of the main narrative of the story, I figured it was a good time to fully flesh out his character. We then continue into the last bits of the North Africa campaign and the Battle of Kasserine Pass, the first real test of American metal in the European theater. However, having come to the end of the North African campaign, I now realize that there are some bits of the colonial African war that I haven't really covered, so I figure I'll just do a quick rundown right now of what we missed. One of the key events before the beginning of the Second World War proper was the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1936. This expanded Italy's colonial holdings from Somalia and brought them into direct contact with the British colonies in Sudan, Egypt, and Kenya. When the war began, Italy struck out from their colonies in the Horn of Africa. Italian troops, many of whom were black Africans of colonial regiments, struck out into the Sudan, Kenya, and British Somaliland, which was entirely occupied by the Italians by the end of August 1940. The Italians experienced so much success early here because they maintained a large colonial garrison, 92,000 Italian regulars, and an additional 250,000 native troops. The British, by contrast, only had about 40,000 troops between Kenya and Sudan. Only a fraction of those were British troops. Most were local regiments like the King's African Rifles of Kenya or the Somali Camel Corps. Despite the overwhelming numerical differences at the beginning of the war, they were quickly made good by reinforcements from other parts of the British Empire, mostly India. And British colonial troops seemed to have been much better trained and armed than Italian indigenous troops. Additional troops came in from the Dominion of South Africa, which had just barely voted to join the war on the side of the Allies. The war inevitably led to a British incursion into Italo-Ethiopia. This was granted additional legitimacy beyond simple military benefit by being led by the exiled emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie. On January 20th, 1941, the British and Ethiopian army in exile crossed from Sudan into Ethiopia. Almost a month later, British troops would cross the Kenyan border into Italian Ethiopia and Somalia. The Ethiopian campaign would be a rather unique one, and that it was fought almost entirely by colonial forces, which were typically less proficient and poorly armed. In addition, Ethiopia lacked modern infrastructure, so the campaign moved slowly and over huge swaths of the territory. It concentrated on mountain passes and remote fortresses, which were the key terrain in the Ethiopian highlands. In addition to South African, Indian, and Kenyan troops, Nigerian troops of the Royal West African Frontier Force played a key role in capturing Ethiopia and Somalia. They were aided, however, by the Italians' inability to keep their local soldiers from deserting. Many of them were brought into the ranks, given arms and ammunition, then simply walked away with the guns and bullets they had just been given. On May 5th, Commonwealth troops occupied the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa, and the campaign was effectively over. The Italian East African Empire was gone. This freed up the troops used there to move to other theaters, particularly the North African theater, where they could assist in the defense of Egypt, which had become a British colony in 1882. I have also been somewhat negligent in outlining the war in the Middle East, and in particular Syria. In April 1941, 
British Signals Intelligence revealed that the Axis planned on using Vichy-held Syria as a staging area to support the Mufti, Rashid Ali, who had risen up in Iraq against the British. The insurrection was short-lived. A hodgepodge of units from Greater Palestine dubbed Hob Force, short for Habaniya Force, crossed the desert into Iraq and met up with the 10th Indian Division, which had landed at Basra. By the end of May, order had been restored. Arab nationalist Baathism would have to lie dormant for another decade or so. The complicity of the Levantine army in the support of the Arab revolt tipped the scales in favor of Allied intervention in Syria, which de Gaulle had long been lobbying for. On June 23, 1941, the 10th Indian Division, Hob Force, the British 6th Division, and the 7th Australian Division began advancing into Syria. In the north, a division of free French advanced on their countrymen. The Levantine army was quickly defeated, but only after bitter fighting, though all parties were rather reluctant to fight one another. The French were loath to kill their compatriots, and the British felt their time and effort would be better spent killing Germans. The fighting was over quickly, though. When it became apparent that the Vichy French position was untenable on July 9th, General Henry Dent sued for terms. They were agreed to on July 11th. Soldiers of the Levantine army could either return home or join the Free French cause. Of the 38,000 troops of the Levantine army, only 5,700 chose to join de Gaulle, mostly men of the French Foreign Legion. The Syrian campaign had cost 3,500 lives, but it secured the eastern flank of British Egypt. Okay, so now that I've filled in the gaps I left in the African campaigns, let's begin episode 32, Fight Like Ike. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? Unlike MacArthur, who had had the most martial of upbringings, Dwight David Eisenhower's was much more humble. The Eisenhower's were Mennonite immigrants from Germany, who settled in Pennsylvania in the 18th century, then migrated west to Kansas in the midst of the Civil War to escape the draft. There, Jacob Eisenhower chose to homestead in Dickinson County, and the Eisenhower clan would grow up from there. He ran a highly successful farm that allowed him to bequeath land and large sums of cash to his children. One of his children, David took his land and sold it to add to the small fortune left to him and went to learn how to operate machinery. After the economic crisis of 1888, he lost all his money and had to go take a job as a railroad hand to make ends meet while living in destitution. In 1890, David and his wife Ida added another mouth to feed, Dwight. With three children on the brink of starvation, the church took them in and found work and home for them in Abilene, Kansas. Soon, they had two more children, and Dwight's uncle offered to rent a home to them for a nominal price. So in 1898, the family moved into what would become his boyhood home. The Eisenhowers were an observant Christian family, and their father was strict and stern, 
resulting in the boys having a rather uneventful childhood in the sleepy town of 4,000. Where once there had been gunfights and cattle rustlers, there was now simply farmers and livestock. Abilene had been settled. The most exciting moment of Dwight's childhood didn't come until he was a freshman at Abilene High School. Every year, the freshman class would hold a fistfight between a champion from the more affluent north side of town and the more downtrodden south side. Dwight was selected as the champion of the south side, just as his older brother, Big Ike, had the year before. After an hour-long brawl that left both boys bloody and bruised, the other boy, Wesley Merrifield, yelled, Ike, I can't lick you, to which he replied, I can't lick you either. The battle ended in a draw, but was dubbed the Kid Fight of the Century. In school, Dwight performed well enough to get by. The only subject he showed any interest in was military history. His true loves were baseball and football. Unfortunately, when he was 14, he suffered a terrible illness. At practice one afternoon, he fell and scraped his knee. It was a minor injury, the kind coaches usually tell kids to just rub dirt in. It didn't even bleed. The next night, a horrible infection set in that made him delirious. The family doctor recommended amputation, but the family, and Ike, refused. Had the infection gotten much worse, he may well have died, but he pulled through and made a full recovery. In 1909, both Edgar, Big Ike, and Dwight, Little Ike, graduated from high school, who both could not afford to go to college at the same time, so they made a pact. Big Ike would go first, to the University of Michigan, and Dwight would stay home and make money to pay his brother's tuition. So Dwight took a position as a night manager at a creamery in town for $90 a month. This nearly doubled the household income, but most of it went into Big Ike's tuition. When the fall of 1910 came around, however, Dwight decided he didn't want to go to school, so he kept working, and Big Ike went back to classes. Dwight had something else in mind. He had a scheme to go to school for free. After graduating, Ike had become friends with one Swede Hazlitt, who was applying to the Naval Academy and had convinced Ike to do the same. After working a little longer and playing some more football at his old high school, because he could do that sort of thing back then, I guess, he prepared to take the entrance exam. To his horror, however, he realized he was too old. He had turned 20 and was no longer eligible to attend Annapolis. But then he realized he could still apply to West Point, so he did and was accepted. In June 1911, he left Abilene and made his way to the banks of the Hudson. Dwight took to West Point like a fish to water. His fascination with military history gave him an appreciation and a sense of awe for the halls he was entering, and he took to his studies faithfully. However, as with all cadets, breaking the rules or bending them was an equally compelling pursuit. Though he didn't smoke when he arrived, he took it up simply because it was against the rules. Like underage drinking, I suppose, the thrill of breaking the rules makes it that much more enjoyable. It wasn't just smoking, though. He was often late to formation and let his uniform and his room to be less than gleaming examples of military precision. The high number of demerits he received reflected on his class rank. Despite decent marks, he graduated 125th out of 164. Like many of the American officers we've discussed, Dwight loved football, and in many ways it was his chief pursuit. Cadet Eisenhower became West Point's starting running back during his sophomore year. He was so devoted to football that, after sustaining a knee injury in a game against Tufts University that ended his playing career, he almost dropped out. It was the offer to coach the junior varsity squad that brought him back from the brink. He proved to be an even better coach than player, and his squad played well. This would have begin a career-long interest in coaching football. Then in 1915 he graduated and was commissioned as an infantry lieutenant. 
He had hoped to be stationed in the Philippines, but instead was sent to Fort Sam Houston in Texas, where he immediately fell into the easy life as an officer in garrison. The days were short, usually over by noon, and social life was robust. Eisenhower, naturally friendly, fit right in. When his commanding general learned that Ike had a knack for coaching football, he sent him off to coach the local military school's team. After one season there, he was appointed the head coach for St. Louis College. St. Louis College hadn't won a game in ages, and Ike brought them into a winning column. Despite his success at football, Ike still wanted to have an actual military career, so he applied to join General Pershing's expedition to Mexico in 1916. His application was rejected. Though disappointed, young Lieutenant Eisenhower still had much to look forward to. That year he met Mammy Dowd, and after a short courtship, wed her on July 1, 1916, at her family's estate in Denver, Colorado. He was then transferred to the newly raised 57th Infantry Regiment, promoted to first lieutenant, and charged with helping to train up the new formation. Then America entered into the First World War, and Ike saw another opportunity for some real action, but his proficiency for training new units preceded him, and he was denied the chance to go to France. Instead, he was sent to train up newly inducted men to be sent to France. Though the assignment got him promoted to captain, it must have been another disappointment. Then the war ended, and for Ike, it might as well have never happened. He never left the U.S., and was demoted back to first lieutenant in 1920. But then, oddly enough, he was promoted to major, and held that rank for the next 16 years. The interwar army was a strange thing. It was small, and not particularly concerned with preparing to fight wars, but for officers, life could be pretty good. The workdays were slow, and there wasn't really much to be done, so social life and amenities were robust. The Corps of Engineers, not tasked with building entrenchments or new bases, mostly built golf courses, swimming pools, and officers' clubs. The Army was only 130,000 men, and the officer corps only a fraction of that, so everyone got to know everyone else pretty well. The Eisenhowers did their part to keep life fulfilling as well always hosting get-togethers and parties where young officers could schmooze and the wives could get to know one another, all the while drinking beer and liquor and smoking like chimneys. They would spend much of their time in the 1920s at Fort Meade, Maryland, where Eisenhower first met George Patton, who was becoming one of the prophets of armored warfare. Patton had actually ridden in a tank into battle during the First World War, and Eisenhower was a quick convert to his friend's ideas. Both Patton and Eisenhower wrote articles in the cavalry and infantry journals, respectively, making the case for tanks as the weapon of the modern battlefield. Both were reprimanded by their superiors for doing so. Tanks were simply an odd weapon to the infantry, but were an existential threat to the cavalry branch. While at Fort Meade, Dwight and Mammy had their first child, but sadly, he died before his second birthday. The shadow hung over the young and bereaved family like a cloud, and Dwight believed a change in scenery would help them recover so he applied for a transfer to the War College at Fort Leavenworth. This was denied. He would get another opportunity when he met General Fox Connor at a social event at Patton's place. Connor was intrigued by the young officer's ideas about tanks and how to use them, and was impressed by their enthusiasm and knowledge. Fox Connor had been Pershing's operations officer for the American Expeditionary Force during the war, and still held a lot of sway. When Connor was given command of an infantry brigade in Panama, he took Eisenhower with him. Eisenhower's three years in Panama would be instrumental in shaping his career. General Connor took Major Eisenhower under his wing as his protege and told him to stop reading dime novels and start reading history. So he did. He plunged into histories of the Civil War and biographies of great generals, and even read Clausewitz On War three times, a voluminous tome that more people have sitting on their mantles than have actually read the thing. 
Connor predicted that Versailles had only been a temporary measure, and that another war would come to Europe, and that Americans would be a part of that one too. Following his stint in Panama, he was back to Fort Meade again, for the purpose of coaching football. The Army was putting together its best coaches to train a super team to beat the Marines squad. Eisenhower would be the backs coach. Unfortunately, the Army had neglected to assign good players to the squad, and the team performed horribly. Following the season, Eisenhower was assigned to command a tank battalion, which he was actually kind of disappointed with. He had plenty of time on the line. What he needed was to go to school and get a broadening assignment. He protested and was given an even worse assignment, recruiting in Colorado. He complained to General Connor, who told him to put up with whatever assignment he was given. He did as he was told, and behind the scenes, General Connor was scheming to get Eisenhower admitted to the Commanded General Staff School at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. By then, Douglas MacArthur had been appointed Chief of Staff of the Army, and in early 1933, Major Eisenhower was assigned as his aide-de-camp. Eisenhower would spend seven years working directly for General MacArthur, and those years would be instrumental in shaping who he would be as a senior officer. It's no secret that Eisenhower and MacArthur had an uneasy relationship, to say the least, later in life. But during the 1930s, they got along just fine. Eisenhower, ever the diligent staff officer, made himself useful to his boss from day one, and MacArthur immediately recognized Eisenhower's talent. MacArthur wrote of Eisenhower, This is the best officer in the army. When the next war comes, he should go right to the top. Thus, MacArthur took Major Eisenhower to the Philippines in 1935. This was the assignment he was looking for. He knew it could be a gamble. Taking a year away from the line, but performing well at the war college, could make a career. And Eisenhower excelled. He graduated first in his class. Such a stellar performance at the war college set Eisenhower's track for excellence. His marks got him the attention of General Pershing, and assigned him to creating a guide to American battlefields in Europe with a six-month deadline. A monumental task to undertake in such a short time frame, so Ike enlisted the help of his younger brother, Milton, who was a successful bureaucrat at the Department of Agriculture. Together, they completed the project on time, which earned Eisenhower a year at the Army War College at Fort McNair. The final year of an officer's higher education was not as rigorous as the first portion, mostly being spent listening to lectures and speeches from senior government officials and flag officers. This gave Ike and Mammy plenty of time to re-establish Club Eisenhower and their robust social life. Following this, they were sent to Paris for a year, then returned to the States in 1929, where Eisenhower served as the executive officer to the Assistant Secretary of War until 1933. Their time in the Philippines would be a period of growth for Eisenhower, but would eventually cause Eisenhower and MacArthur's relationship to strain. Though Eisenhower conceded that MacArthur was an incredibly smart man with an impressive intellect, his personality rubbed him the wrong way. This came to a head when MacArthur broached the topic of his new title in the Philippine Army. MacArthur would be a field marshal, and his aides, Majors Eisenhower and Ord, would be generals. Eisenhower was having none of that. He was a major in the United States Army. MacArthur was a general. That was a great and honorable thing. Being a general in the Filipino Army meant less to him than being captain of his high school football team. MacArthur was not pleased when Eisenhower did not share his opinion and let him know about it. From there, their relationship worsened. MacArthur had unrealistic grand designs for the Filipino army that Eisenhower had to squash and circles he had to square. When Eisenhower drew up the first budget needed to raise and maintain the army MacArthur proposed, it would cost $25 million. The Filipino president had allocated only $8 million for defense spending. Years later, Eisenhower would save his time under MacArthur. 
I studied dramatics under MacArthur for seven years. Finally, in December 1939, Eisenhower boarded a ship in Manila to head back to the United States. Of course, by then, the Second World War had already begun. He had been promoted to lieutenant colonel and was on his way to take command of the 1st Battalion, 15th Infantry, 3rd Infantry Division at Fort Lewis, Washington. He finally had the command he had always wanted and felt he had reached the culmination of his career. In addition, his son had applied to West Point and passed the examination to achieve his appointment to follow in his father's footsteps. As they say, when it rains, it pours, and after being in his battalion command for about a year, Eisenhower received a letter from his old friend George Patton. Patton wanted to let him know that two brand new armored divisions were being stood up, and wanted to know if Eisenhower would like a place in them. Eisenhower replied that he did not have enough time and grade to warrant a promotion to full colonel, but he would love a regimental command, or at least to be a chief of staff. Unfortunately, Eisenhower's diligence as a staff officer preceded him, and everyone wanted him as their chief of staff. So he wound up at Fort Sam Houston in Texas, chief of staff of the 3rd Army under General Kruger. On March 11, 1940, he was promoted to full bird colonel. As chief of staff of 3rd Army, Eisenhower participated in the huge Louisiana maneuvers in which the 3rd Army attacked the 2nd Army under General Lear. The exercise was the largest in American history and was held in August and September of 1941, so it must have been absolutely abysmal. The Army continues to hold brigade-sized maneuvers at the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana to this day, and it is infamous for being a hot, sticky, miserable place. Colonel Eisenhower set up shop south of the main training area, near Lake George, where the press and outside world had some access to him. His tent became something of a social hub, where leading officers of the Army would gather, as well as civilians to come observe the maneuvers. Eisenhower became a minor celebrity thanks to his easy-going way and affability. When the 3rd Army routed the 2nd Army, much of the credit went to Eisenhower, who was one of the chief architects of the plan. His performance during the Louisiana maneuvers earned Eisenhower his first star, and he was promoted to Brigadier General shortly thereafter. After the exercise, he returned to San Antonio, where he was on December 7, 1941. Soon after the attack, he received a summons from General Marshall to Washington. He assumed the new chief of staff of the Army merely wanted to discuss the situation in the Philippines. Little did he know he would become the general's chief aide, and that he was being launched to the greatest heights of military command. Eisenhower's command in North Africa was proving just as much of a test of his abilities as anything before. His men were all green and not prepared for the rigors of war. The vast majority were not old regulars, but new inductees. Eisenhower had been in the army longer than most of them had been alive, and it showed. The junior officers were casual and friendly with their troops. Rather than training them or setting them about inconvenient but necessary military chores, like digging foxholes or laying minefields, they let them explore the villages and countrysides. This was a lesson the U.S. Army would only have to learn once in North Africa, but it would be a harsh lesson. Fortunately for Eisenhower and the Allied troops under his command, the U.S. II Corps and the British First Army, the Germans were in rough shape. As the Africa Corps repositioned itself into Tunisia, Rommel had once again traveled back to Germany to seek relief from Hitler. He wanted to withdraw entirely from the continent, but when he told Hitler his intentions, the Fuhrer went to into a rage and called Rommel and his men cravens. Rommel pleaded that the newly arrived Americans were superior in both equipment and numbers. There was no way the ragged and undersupplied German-Italian force could hold them. After his initial outburst, Hitler told Rommel to come back and see him the next day. During their next meeting, the Fuhrer was more agreeable. He told Rommel they could not withdraw, but that he would get them all the support they needed, 
from the Luftwaffe. Reichsmarschall Goering was present and promised he would get Rommel what he needed. Rommel was not reassured. He and his wife traveled from Germany to Italy with the Goerings in the Reichsmarschall's private rail car. They wined and dined the whole way, and after arriving in Italy, stayed with the Goerings. Rommel witnessed hedonism of Goering firsthand. The gelatinous mountain of a man was constantly adorned in jewels and diamonds and flamboyant outfits. He partied every night and looted museums by day. It was clear to Rommel that Goering had gone mad and that the Fuhrer was not far behind him. When he returned to North Africa, he found that men and materiel were indeed flowing in, though. Perhaps the Africa Corps stood a chance. Eisenhower had problems of his own. He had all of the material support he could ask for from the United States, but his subordinates were frustrating him. The commander of two corps was being a prime example. General Friedenhall completely lacked the offensive spirit and constructed a veritable fortress in a cave in a remote mountain pass. He was not visiting the front and tasked his corps engineer assets with building his mountain lair rather than assisting the line units with their fortifications. Eisenhower still had his staff officers cool, though, and rather than berating the general and sacking him on the spot, he offered a subtle recommendation and admonition to the general. He was still relearning command. Dithering by the Americans and the British Eighth Army opposite them gave Rommel the opportunity he needed. Montgomery was preparing an attack on the Marath Line in southeast Tunisia, but Rommel knew Monty would wait until the stars aligned to carry out his attack, so he used the lull to conduct a spoiling attack against the green and inexperienced American troops. He found just the place to strike in the Fayid Plain between the towns of Gafs and Fonduk in central Tunisia. American troops held the line there, and on February 14, 1943, he attacked. His experienced troops easily punctured the ineptly held American line and began driving through toward Kesserine Pass to the northwest. On the first day of battle, Rommel's men were able to isolate and destroy a whole U.S. armored battalion that was encircled. Forty-four Shermans were destroyed and 26 field guns, as well as all of the men of the battalion. The American two corps headquarters descended into anarchy. The command and staff could not keep control or situational awareness over their tactical situation and the subordinate commands were collapsing. A week later, Rommel had pushed through Kesserine Pass and was on the far side of the hills. Eisenhower kept his cool, however, and began making moves to correct the situation. He urged his subordinates to begin a counterattack on Rommel's flanks, understanding that the Desert Fox was outstretched and his supply lines were exposed. The 1st Armored Division led the counterattack on Rommel's left, but was heavily blooded in the engagement. 98 tanks were lost in the counterattack. A few days later, the British 6th Armored Division and the U.S. 34th Infantry Division began moving into blocking positions on Rommel's right in order to bottle him up. Rommel saw what was happening and began to withdraw. He had accomplished his proximate goal of disrupting the Allied advance, if not his ultimate goal of halting the advance entirely, or at least severely slowing it down. Rommel had inflicted 5,000 casualties on the Americans, teaching them a valuable lesson that nothing short of actual contact with the enemy could have taught them. They went from amateurish green inductees to professional soldiers almost overnight, thanks to Rommel's blooding. That lesson they only needed to learn once. Major General Patton's influence certainly helped straighten out two corps as well. After getting whacked so hard, Eisenhower fired Friedenhall and replaced him with Patton. He instilled into the men a sense of discipline, sometimes even to a fault. Patton's psychological impact on his men was complemented by his thorough understanding of armored warfare. Finally, there was someone in North Africa who could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rommel at his own game. During the counterattack, Patton wanted to strike out farther and faster to disrupt Rommel's rear area, but General Alexander held him back. Patton's aggressiveness helped spur on Eisenhower as well, 
who was still fighting methodically like a staff officer. The combination of their first real battle and Patton's attitude probably contributed to Eisenhower fully transforming into a wartime commander. But Patton had had enough of General Alexander, and what he felt to be British politicking to get their own man in command, so he requested to be transferred to Morocco, where he could help plan Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. Patton was replaced by Omar Bradley at two corps in March of 1943. The Battle of North Africa was essentially over now. The North African campaign had been a long and costly one, especially in terms of prisoners. Hundreds of thousands of men found themselves in POW camps by the campaign's end, on both sides of the Atlantic, and some Italian prisoners found themselves as far away as Australia. At the tactical level, the campaign had been characterized by wide-open spaces and the endless flanks of the desert. At the operational level, however, the campaign was much more two-dimensional. The roughly 700 miles between El Agalia and El Alamein where most of the campaign was fought, was contained to the few desert roads and ports. The east of the corridor was only about 40 miles wide between the sea and the Katara Depression. This led to the campaign being characterized by sprints from one position to another. The campaign also spelled the end of Mussolini's Italo-African Empire. By early 1943, nearly all of his overseas possessions were gone, and the bulk of the Italian army had been shattered. His best troops had gone to North Africa, and they were badly mauled in the fighting. Those who returned were severely demoralized and materially deficient. Mussolini had some serious egg on his face, to say the least, and it wasn't clear what lay in his future. With North Africa firmly in allied hands, Italy was next on the chopping block. <laughs>